0: are listening to Talking Machines, the show where we learn more about machine learning. It's all in the name. You don't really need much more explanation than that. I'm your host, Catherine Gorman, and I am here with my co-host, Brian Adams. Hi. This is our first episode, and we wanted to take a little bit of time to introduce ourselves and also what we're going to be doing here and uh, give, you, give you a little taste of the things that you're going to get to listen to this season. I am a interested non-expert, which is code for nerd who has no credentials, Um, and I just really love learning about machine learning and uh, how it's going to shape literally everything in our future. I'm pretty convinced at this point. But Ryan, you are actually an expert in this field. Tell us who you are.
1: <laughs> my, na- my name is Ryan Adams. I'm an assistant professor of computer science at Harvard University. I'm in the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. There's actually not a computer science department as such here, but really? kind of a, a school of engineering with a lot of different kinds of things like applied math and applied physics and electrical engineering. And computer science is, is a big part of that. And that's the group that I'm associated with here. My main research focus and the focus of my group is on machine learning. Machine learning is is a really exciting area. It's a subfield of computer science that interfaces with statistics and artificial intelligence and physics and lots of different uh, interesting areas. The gist of it is basically to try to figure out how to make computers learn from data and learn about the world and learn from experience broadly defined so that they can help us do interesting things. Maybe they can make predictions for us. They can do things like help us make decisions and generally find maybe new representations of complicated data in the world that we can then better understand. So maybe things like better search engines, better scientific visualization, better predictions about the weather, and all kinds of different, different kinds of things. I think the best way to, th- to think about machine learning, or at least one interesting way to think about machine learning, is as a way to automatically write computer programs. So the typical way that, you know, you might write a computer program traditionally. Is you sit down at your computer and you write a bunch of code, and you imagine different kinds of inputs that that uh, you know that that program might see, mm-hmm. and then you think real hard and write down uh, you know write down a way to take those inputs and produce an output. Right. And uh, machine learning is a different kind of way to do programming mm-hmm. in a sense, in which what you do is you first sit down and you assemble a bunch of examples of inputs and outputs where if I had this input, here's what I'd like to produce. Right. And you know, a typical kind of example might be something like, oh, here's a picture and I think this is a picture of a dog. Mm-hmm. And I'd like it to produce the label dog, mm-hmm. given that such an image. And here's another one and this one has a cat in it. And I like it, I'd like it to produce the label cat instead of the label dog. And then maybe I get hundreds or thousands of examples of images like this and I present them to a machine learning system. And it gives me back a program mm-hmm. that, given an image, can tell me whether or not it's a, it's a cat or a dog or something else. Right. And it's a certain kind of automatic programming at some level where we give it lots of examples of something and maybe some notion of what the right behavior is. And it tries to learn to get good at that for examples it has never seen before.
0: So you're letting the computer do the thinking real hard part.
1: Well, hopefully, I mean, it, this is why we call it learning. So, it, it, humans kind of do this too. As a little kid, you see examples of what looks like a dog, what looks like a cat, what looks like a horse and a cow, and so on. Uh, I have a toddler at home, so we do a lot of this, you know, uh, <laughs> identifying animals and things. And and so, what we're trying to do is develop a way for computer programs to do this, the same kind of thing. And this is why it's really related to to the field of artificial intelligence. And what hmm. we often think of it as a subfield of artificial intelligence, because it, uh, you know. AI can mean a lot of things to to different people, oh, yeah. and you know maybe it's making you know smart decisions and, and kind of you know voice recognition or a lot of different things. But I th- it's hard to overstate the importance of adaptation mm-hmm. to uh, to intelligence. I think that anything that's really intelligent is going to is going to be interacting with the world and and adapting and responding and learning about the structure that exists. I think right now, trying to figure out how to do that in intelligent systems, how to make intelligent systems learn, is one of the most important and exciting scientific questions. Oh, definitely. Um, but it, but as I said, it it's also relates to to sort of things that maybe have less science fiction appeal, but things like uh, but things like statistics. Yeah. Because a lot of what a lot of what learning really means is understanding the way that the world works, and that means understanding the way that the world works statistically. Like what is it, you know, a lot of what makes something intelligent is its ability is something's ability to, to uh, see sort of signal in the noise. Mm -hmm. The world is uncertain. You know, there's a door over there. I don't know what's on the other side of it, but something that's intelligent, you know, maybe can reason about what's on the other side of that door, even though it can't see it. And this is an inference problem, right? This is a question of how do I disambiguate all of the, the uncertainty and the noise and, and sort of understand what's going on, mm-hmm. and so a lot of the tools and a lot of the mathematics that we that we use for this in the field are uh, are fundamentally statistical, and as a result of this, then it, there's there's a lot of crosstalk these days between the statistics and machine learning communities.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to unpack here. We have everyone is starting to use these techniques to sort of look at their own data sets and find new right. ways to to think about them or an approach them and, and get different answers out of them. So every two weeks we're going to bring you a new episode. Ryan and I will be discussing a little industry news. We're going to be having interviews with with experts from all sorts of different fields who are using machine learning for all sorts of different problems. And you know every once in a while we might even try to answer your questions about machine learning problems or your own data sets. So We'll see how that goes. We're going to attempt that. But a couple of weeks ago, we got to go to NIPS, which was really exciting. We we hauled up to Montreal. Um, and NIPS, I should say, is the Neural Information Processing Systems Conference. Is That's that right. correct, Ryan? That's right. And Ryan, I heard you a couple of times describe this conference as your home conference. So yeah. can you give us sort of a feel for what NIPS is like for you and the rest of the machine learning humans?
1: Sure. So there, there are a couple of different big conferences in machine learning. And uh, and generally the two really uh, sort of best known ones are the International Conference on Machine Learning, which is ICML, which mm-hmm. happens every summer. And the Neural Information Processing Systems conference, or NIPS, uh, which happens in sort of first or second week in December, and uh, and is almost always in somewhere cold because it's almost always been associated with skiing. Although, although that's uh, not that, this year. Not this year. It was just for cold the first, this year. Yeah, it was just cold but for the first time. It wasn't anywhere you could you could easily ski. <laughs> um, but it, it was in Denver for a long time, and mm-hmm. then um, and then more recently in Vancouver. In the last couple of years, it's moved around a little bit before landing in Montreal. And I, I should say there's a couple of other great conferences too, um, AI Stats, UAI, and and some uh, and a new conference called iClear. But I think of NIPS as being my home conference because it's sort of the one that I, it's the conference that I went to first when I was a grad student. It's the one I try to make sure I go to every year. It's the ones the one that I think my my closest friends in the field also always try to go to. So I think it was my home conference because it it feels like a family reunion Hmm. uh, in which I get to see all my friends, whether or not we're presenting work, and and we get to to hang out. And it kind of maps well onto onto at least like the winter holidays where, you know, right. where oh, I would, yeah. you know you go home for Christmas time and you, <laughs> and you like go to the bar and there is your and there's friends, everybody, from high school. everybody from high school and you, uh, and, and you, you chat up all your friends from high school and see what they've been up to. It's like that, but for grad school. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Good. Nice.
1: So you like turn up and and there's all your old grad school buddies.
0: There's everybody from my postdoc and we hang around and get drunk and complain about our parents, which is your principal investigator. Exactly.
1: That's exactly right. You've got to catch up on all the gossip. What have people been up to? (laughs) So
0: so I had a great time as someone who was just running around at the conference. But um, we got to talk to a bunch of really interesting people while we were there. We cornered a bunch of people for interviews. It was really fantastic. The first part of the first season, we're going to be bringing some of the interviews that we got a chance to do at NIPS, And um, we started off by Cornering Kevin Murphy, can you tell us a little bit more about Kevin and what the the sort of work that he's doing there now?
1: Sure, yeah. So so Kevin is Kevin is great. So he was at the University of British Columbia for quite a while and and uh, got tenure and did some great work there, but then has has more recently moved to to Google in mm-hmm. Mountain View. Kevin spent many years writing a, a textbook that came out now, I guess in maybe 2010, mm-hmm. and this book it's or, sort of
0: it's one of the most popular textbooks in graduate courses on Absolutely. machine learning.
1: Absolutely. It's the textbook that I use in, in my course. It's a textbook that I think a lot of people use. It's, I think, the most comprehensive sort of graduate level text on on the market right now. Yeah.
0: yeah. And when we when we got to sit down with Kevin, we talked a little bit about his textbook and also how you write a textbook for a field that changes so quickly. So, you know, let's take a little listen to that interview. tracks a little bit. Uh, you recently published a textbook. I did. And I, I was researching a little bit and there's a, there's a Reddit about your textbook. And the really? first quote, yes, the first question is which, I am trying to read Kevin Murphy's textbook and I can't get into it. What do I need to know to be able to understand <laughs> Kevin Murphy's textbook? So, Kevin Murphy, what do I need to read to be able to understand your textbook?
2: Oh, goodness. Well, it's, it's, uh, um, it's designed for mostly graduate students and maybe senior uh, undergraduates. Um, so people who have... Know, suitable mathematical training um, who have maybe you know taken a basic class in probability theory and linear algebra and have some comfort with programming in you know Python or some language like that. Um, so you know there are lots of other books that teach these more basic things. Um, there are more gentle machine learning books out there. Are you asking me to recommend some?
0: Yeah, what do you what do you think would be a good basis for getting into machine learning?
2: Oh, gosh. I mean, the field changes so fast. I don't remember the name off the top of my head. I mean, I look at my Amazon reviews. And <laughs> some people have said that my book is inaccessible. Um, so I know one thing that's popular, at least on Amazon, but I haven't read it myself, is the book by Abu Mustafa, who's a Caltech professor, and that has high ratings. So if you trust Amazon's rating system, that might be a good entry point. It's certainly shorter than mine, um, which has virtues. Um, I should point out, however for those of you listening. That's, uh, I, I apologize for all of the typos in the first version of <laughs> my book. Uh, it went to press rather quickly. And so if you have an old copy, um, it, it does have quite a few errors, and I'm sorry for that. Um, the latest printing is the fourth printing. It's been quite popular, so they've, they're have up to round four. And uh, most of the, all, all the known errors have been fixed. So it should, I don't wanna say it's flawless, but um, there are very few errors now, I believe. And I'm hoping actually to work on a second edition. MIT Press has asked me to start thinking about that. It might take a couple of years, so don't wait for it. Um, but eventually, you know, the field is moving fast, like I said, and you know, I realize my book is like a de facto standard now in many classes. So I would like to keep it up to date.
1: So actually, sort of related to this, I mean, one of the challenges in a very fast-moving field is, of course, deciding when you're going to stop and write the book and kind of where the horizon <laughs> is. The uh, one of the things that makes your your Book really remarkable and really great from my point of view for trying to teach a graduate course that gives a reasonable snapshot of modern machine learning is that it it sort of uh, references papers and ideas that are, that are quite recent. And this is in contrast to other good books, for example, uh, Chris Bishop's book that, uh, you know, uh, sort of stops at well, that was written in maybe 2006, but that in a sense is was complete from a technical point of view in sort of 2000. So how did you grapple with this decision of where to draw the line on what to include?
2: That's difficult. I, I should pay homage to Chris's book. I, I taught classes from it myself for, for several years and I learned a lot from it. Um, but yes, it was the fact that it was somewhat out of date that was a motivation for me to write my own book and to try to you know bring some more modern material in it. It's very difficult, like the chapter, I wrote a chapter on deep learning and that's one of the fastest moving subfields of machine learning. And it's already significantly out of date. Um, So, you know, that's one of the things that I hope to update in the second edition. But there are other topics that I didn't have space to cover. So stuff that Ryan works on, for example, with Bayesian optimization didn't make it into the first edition. Um, And at the time, it maybe didn't seem that important. And recently, I think its value has become apparent. Similarly, reinforcement learning, I, I made a conscious decision not to cover it because it was I think considered somewhat fringe and recently I think there's been a lot of breakthroughs in the field partly due to the DeepMind guys in London um, but some other groups as well and it's you know of increasing importance I think and it's not covered in any of the other books so um, it's just my gut instinct about what's important like what I at the time I wrote it I was a professor at the time and I was writing what I think the students ought to know. It was kind of like the field guide to surviving nips and (laughs) and getting your thesis at a top school. Like, what do you need to know? You pretty much need to know everything in that book And, and, and other things, too. It's not, you know, encyclopedic, but I was trying to be as broad as possible.
0: So yeah, that's just a part of the interview that we have with Kevin Murphy. We got to talk with him about the complications of publishing in machine learning, and what his hopes are for his next textbook that he's working on, and um, also his own research, what he's got going on right now. So you'll be able to hear that whole interview with Kevin Murphy coming up a little bit later in the season. So while we were at NIPS, we also got to sit down with uh, Hannah Wallach. And Ryan, she's one of your close friends, actually.
1: That's right. You know, Hannah is is one of these people that I really uh, that I go to NIPS to see. She's a close friend. We went to graduate school together at the University of Cambridge, and and both worked with David MacKay. Since then, she's gone on to do lots of other cool things. Uh, she's currently at Microsoft Research in New York, uh, mm-hmm. and she's on leave uh, from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Hannah, like I said, does lots of lots of neat things, uh, both from a purely technical point of view in machine learning. She's done a lot of really neat stuff with topic modeling, in particular. But she's uh, she's really at the forefront, I think, uh, of somebody who takes machine learning tools to do quantitative social science to try yeah. to understand political systems um, and uh, and to understand sort of social processes using these these quite sophisticated probabilistic models.
0: So when we sat down with Hannah, we got to talk about the research questions that she's grappling with right now, which really focus on the roles of people in local government, which I just found absolutely fascinating. But we also talked a little bit about how she was instrumental in starting WIML, which is Women in Machine Learning. It's this co-located event workshop. What would you call it, Ryan?
1: I I think it's fair to call it a workshop. Mm
0: -hmm. So it's a co-located workshop that happens every year with NIPS, and it's a chance for female researchers to present their tech The technical side of what they're working on, and um, she told us a little bit about how the how
3: the event got started. I said, "I've been to NIPS many times, and in 2005, I finally knew other female PhD students, and as a result, I was able to share a room with them at NIPS, and this was pretty." shocking so we were hanging out in our hotel room and we were sitting around talking who was it? uh there was me jen wartman um lisa weiner and angela Yu. um and i think actually in that conversation Catherine heller was present as well and maybe some other uh, some other people but we were basically hanging around and just talking about the fact that it was amazing that there were so many of us you know there were Four, five, <laughs> this seemed like a huge number. And we got to talking and we we started trying to think of other women in machine learning. And we got to a point where we had thought of 10 women in machine learning. We thought this is incredible, there are 10 of us. and So we thought, you know, maybe we should do something to bring them all together. So the idea that we came up with was to submit a proposal to the Grace Hopper Conference, this annual conference that is focused on women in computing. And we did exactly that. It ended up being me, Jen, and Lisa, who ended up doing this. We submitted a proposal. By the time we submitted our proposal to Grace Hopper, we had a list of 25 women in machine learning, and this this just completely blew our minds. There's an email thread between me and Jen, in which, I think it's, I think it's me who says this in all caps, there are 25 women in machine learning. <laughs> this is incredible. We just thought this was, shocking, amazing, totally awesome. So we submitted our proposal to Grace Harper for various reasons, it ended up not happening as a session at Grace Hopper, in part because what we'd proposed was much bigger than what Grace Hopper sessions typically are. So we decided to go it alone and to co to locate a separate standalone event the day before Grace Hopper that year. So that was 2006 by that point. So Jen, Lisa, and I then spent several months working really frantically to pull together the first Women in Machine Learning workshop. By the time the workshop happened, it had grown way out of proportion beyond whatever we'd ever we'd ever thought we might have. We had something like, I don't remember the exact number, but it was around 90 registrants that first year, which was just unbelievable to us. Um, The workshop was a huge success. Really amazing talks, amazing presentations from a really interesting group of people. And at the end of the workshop, we had a discussion trying to figure out where to go from there. And it was decided that we should hold another one of these the next year. So we recruited some other organizers because we were pretty burnt out at that point. (laughs) Um, And the workshop was held again in two thousand. 2007, and again co-located with Grace Hopper. Um, by that time, we'd started to get money to bring participants to the Wimmel workshop. We started doing some serious thinking about what we wanted to do moving forward. Um, we ended up realizing that if we were instead to co-locate with NIPS, which is kind of where this whole thing started anyway, that we would be able to dual purpose our funding by not only using our funding to bring women to Wimmel, but that would then enable them to attend NIPS. Oh,
1: that's great.
3: Yeah, so we ended up then working with the NIPS Foundation Board to co-locate Wimmel from then onwards with NIPS. It's been at NIPS since, I guess, 2008. Um, We hold it the day before, everything starts, I guess it's actually on the same day as the tutorials, because people didn't want to come, NIPS is already a very long conference, people didn't want to come for an additional day, Um, but we hold it before uh, the main conference starts so that women get a chance to get to know one another, so that then when they do attend the main conference and they're in that sea of, you know, 2,400, 2,500 people, they at least recognize a few familiar faces. Um, and this seems to be seems to be working pretty well.
1: That's fantastic. So how how big has it grown? How many how many people come to Wimmel now? So
3: I can sort of answer that question and sort of not answer it. And here's why: uh, this year we had 160 registrants, fantastic. but we explicitly capped registration at 160 because we ran out of space. We had no idea it was going uh, to be. Yep, have. exactly. So I can concretely tell you that 160 women registered. What I can't tell you is how many more would have registered had we actually been able to accommodate more people.
1: So coming back here to, to Montreal next year, are you going to yes. be able to expand it?
3: Yes, we believe so. And one thing that I actually want to take this opportunity to mention is that right since its first year, we were hoping that Wimmel would serve not only as an opportunity to bring together women from the machine learning community and to kind of promote and support their work, but we were really hoping that it would serve as an opportunity to showcase women's work to the wider machine learning community. So we've been thinking a lot about this over the past, I guess, nine years, or however long it's been. Um, and every year we do have a small number of men attending the workshop, but we've begun to realize that men, for the most part, don't realize that they can attend. That's right. So what we'd really like to do is actually see more men attending Wimmel next year. They, they won't be presenting, their work because it's intended to showcase women's, the work of women in yeah, machine learning. That's one of the things um, that people
1: need to realize, too, is that it is a technical it's it, a Oh, technical that's workshop. absolutely.
3: It is focused on technical discussion, technical talks. So we have a number of invited speakers who are who are women presenting their technical work in machine learning. We have a number of students presenting their technical work. We typically have some kind of mentoring session and some kind of career session, but the bulk of the time really is devoted to that showcasing of technical work. And so we're really hoping that more men will start showing up to Wimmel to really get more of a sense of the amazing work that all of these women are doing. So it was really fascinating to talk with Hannah.
0: And um, we will bring you the full interview with her a little bit later in the season, and we'll dive really far into her research, which is really fascinating. One of the other people we got to talk to while we were at NIPS was Professor Max Welling, who's the 2013 program co-chair for the conference. And something kind of crazy happened at the 2013 conference. Mark Zuckerberg just like showed up in the middle of it and was like, "Hey guys, what's up?" So, <laughs> Ryan, you were there. Like, how did that affect the conference?
1: Well, you know, so I, I didn't actually see uh, see him at the conference you just myself. Just heard that Ryan Gosling was there. But it was, oh well, yeah, exactly. It was just <laughs> it was the it was the only thing anybody could talk about. It seemed like. Well, so first at NIPS, there's um, there's the main conference, and then there are two days of workshops, and right. the workshops are, you know, there's a bunch of different workshops on different topics. One of the very popular workshops for the last couple of years has been the deep learning workshop, as mm-hmm. deep learning is sort of taking over the world. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the ways in which deep learning has been taking over the world is has been that it's getting huge investments from really big tech companies. So. Places like Google and uh, and Facebook and Microsoft and so on and and uh, and one of the challenges though has been trying to you know recruit really great people and, right. and get research labs started up at places like Facebook to do uh, to do research in this and to take advantage of these advances mm-hmm. and um, and Mark Zuckerberg made an appearance at the deep learning workshop yeah and uh, and I think he was on a panel and answered some questions um, and by all accounts you know really had very interesting things to say about how uh facebook would like to i i think sort of build a theory of mind to to understand the way that people are using and understand what's going on and and be able to um you know help them communicate with the world and probably also present them with better advertisements uh based on based on kind of an improved understanding of their you know their their psychology and that this will necessarily involve a lot of machine learning um the effect on the conference was interesting. It was the first NIPS where it really felt like um, there was a lot of, a lot of industrial Mm. sort of commercial attention. Mm -hmm. You know, NIPS has been this kind of funny community that does its own thing and it's kind of quirky with the skiing and all. And it's this like big, but single track conference and so on. And like I said, it kind of always felt like a family reunion for me, even as it's gotten bigger. Last year, suddenly it felt like there was a lot of money and the stakes were very high uh. in a way that that uh, that they hadn't been previously. And, and that's so on one hand, it's really great because you feel like this indicates that there's a lot of a lot of attention. You would like the things that you're working on to be important right. You'd like people like Mark Zuckerberg to care about the work that you're doing. Definitely. Um, on the other hand, it uh, it causes uh, it causes the incentives to change yeah uh, in complicated ways and and I think, um, and I think we all feel a little bit ambiguous about that. And, and I think that's something that, you know, that Max articulated well uh, in, in, uh, when we that's chatted with
4: him. I'm interested in that relationship between academia and, uh, and industry. So what we have seen is that um, the you know, big Internet companies in Silicon Valley have, uh, you know, attracted a lot of our talented students, basically. My students, you know, are immediately absorbed into these companies. Um, and they are doing very good, re- you know, high-level research, uh, and they have the resources, and the data, and the compute power, and so a lot of the really best um, research is coming out of these labs now. And they actually also participate in the academic process, so that they also, you know, organize conferences or donate money, or so they, you know, there's a really a two-way street, which I think is very good. And we are also seeing a dwindling of funding from uh, from governments, which worries me. Um, But, you know, for us, maybe if we can sort of get industry interested in, um, you know, in in also, you know, providing funding for research, since we are, you know, delivering their workforce, um, I think that could be a very interesting relationship that we should explore.
0: How have you seen it evolve over the past five years? It seems to have changed so greatly so fast.
4: Yeah. Um, So one thing that I've seen is that um, university labs, they have startups. Uh, because they have, you know, first of all, they have interesting products or interesting ideas, interesting algorithms. And they have a lot of, uh, you know, they're sitting on a gold mine of talent. Um, and these spin-offs get bought by bigger companies, who then sort of build sort of maybe sort of a, a lab around it that's supported by that company. We've seen it in Oxford now. Um, and, uh, I th- you know, this could be a model for the future right so in some sense maybe industries need to think harder about you know if they want to commercialize whatever their their ideas are because they have lots of ideas and they publish them but if they you know these may be actually you know ideas that could be interesting to industry Hmm. I don't know you know there's cons pros and cons to this process because if you you know if you if you get companies involved of course they want the IP and um, you know what does that mean? you know does it restrict other people to use what you did? and so these are interesting questions that we need to ponder and explore in the future. I think the best thing of course would be that the governments would fund fundamental research again um, <laughs> at, at a higher level. but you know if, if that is not happening, uh, you know maybe we should explore other other things as well.
0: Do you see the decline in funding as a global trend? I mean, it's very prevalent in the U.S. But and it's
4: also very prevalent in Europe, mm-hmm. um, maybe less so in Asia. The, um, but I'm not living in Asia, so Right. right exactly. I, I, I cannot uh, profit <laughs> from that. But, uh, uh, I, you know, in Europe and in, uh, and in uh, North America, uh, this is definitely a trend. And mm-hmm. it worries me because mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, having a good research is very important for economy. I know it, I, I'm hoping that that trend at some point will turn around, as the economies will get stronger again. Um, but yeah, up to that time, we'll have to maybe also find other alternatives. And you know, I should say that I'm I'm also interested in working with industry, as I said, because they have sometimes they have the interesting problems, they have the interesting data, they have the resources to work with that data. So there's also certain advantages to you know having access to that in a in a big company
0: mm-hmm. in academia there are very sort of set ethical rules and um, patterns of behavior that you must follow do you see those things translating into the corporate realm of research or are we going to see new developments along those lines for corporate basic research as well
4: I think the game will change a little bit if companies get involved uh, Yeah, some companies are better than others um, so in academia we have everything open we like to publish everything immediately Um, and we like to you know have uh, our code open access by everybody basically open access Um, if companies get involved you pay a price and the price is that they will want the IP and um, I think what will not change is that uh, whatever gets done gets published because you know the work is mostly done by PhD students and master students and they need to publish their work so Mm -hmm. that will not change but maybe, you know, um, it will be delayed by a little bit, which you don't think is a problem. Um, but you could worry about the IP question, how that, how that develops. So, I, you know, it's, some, it's something that needs to be experienced and figured out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think the last word has been said about it. But I think it's, at this point, neither, you know, super positive nor super negative. It's, something, it's a new relationship between academia and industry that has pros and cons and that needs to be explored. That's the way I see it.
0: So it was really interesting to talk to Max and get his perspective on how industry's involvement in the field is sort of changing things and how that might develop into the future.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm so glad we got to talk to Max. He's such a thoughtful guy and and you know, I have to say I think of him as being one of the most creative researchers in the field of machine learning right now.
0: Oh, definitely. And while we were there, we also pulled off sort of a Hail Mary and I didn't know that if we were going to be able to do it or not, but it was really fantastic. We got to sit down with Jan LeCun, Jeff Hinton, and Yashua Bengio. And it was really amazing. We got them all in the same room for like an hour and a half. I couldn't believe it. So we should sort of step back and explain a little bit about who these guys are and what they are doing. So Jeff Hinton is at the University of Toronto and also at Google. Uh, Jan LeCun is at Facebook and also NYU. And Yashua Bengio is with the University of Montreal still, yes? That's right. And these three guys have been around for... Since the beginning of machine learning. Well,
1: you know, I, I think it's not fair to say the beginning of machine learning, which <laughs> we could probably draw sort of, you know, a line back to at least the fifties for, oh, okay. for machine learning. They're but not that old. They're not that old, but the but these guys are definitely pillars of the field. And one of the things that's so fun about getting to talk to them also in the same room is that they have such a great long view on machine learning as they've made contributions over decades. And in particular, the thing that's most exciting right now is that they're really leading the charge on. The, this on deep learning right this resurgence of neural networks that's captured the attention of so many people these guys basically invented that mm-hmm. that, that uh this this idea that sort of started in 2005 2006 of really revisiting neural networks for hard problems these guys own it they uh they, even in their own words, they, they said uh, that it was a conspiracy to get people excited <laughs> about neural networks again. And, uh, and, and it, was, it was really fun to get them in the same room.
0: Definitely. And when we sat down, we first asked Jeff for sort of a long view, his uh, sort of historical take on what sorry, things have been like for him in the field. Um,
5: so in the 80s, we had a very exciting time after a number of different groups discovered the backpropagation algorithm, Yan um, being one of them. And in the mid-80s, we thought this would do wonderful things. And we managed to get it to do some pretty impressive things for reading handwritten characters, and fairly impressive for speech recognition, where it was about on a par with the existing best technology. Um, But it was a disappointment overall. We couldn't learn lots of layers of features. And so the whole idea of deep learning is you want to learn layers of features instead of hand-engineering them. And pretty much the only system where that worked really well was a system for handwritten character recognition that Jan developed at the University of Toronto and then later at AT AT&T. And that was used widely, but it wasn't enough to keep everybody interested. And in the 90s, other machine learning methods that were easier for a novice to apply um, did as well or better than neural nets on many problems. And interest in them died. The three of us all knew they were ultimately going to be the answer, Um, and when we got better hardware and more data and a slight improvement in the techniques, they suddenly took off again.
0: It was really fascinating to hear what Jeff had to say about how the field has developed and where it's going, and uh, Jan also had some really interesting ideas about computer vision specifically and how it's changed and how rapidly it's changing.
1: That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jan's, uh, a lot of Jan's motivations over the years, I think, has been to get really good at different kinds of computer vision problems. But some of the technical approaches that he's had, convolutional neural networks and, and related ideas, have come in and out of fashion over time. And, and sometimes that's been frustrating, and other times it's been very uh, so exciting. I, was,
6: I consider myself an integral part of the vision community. I started, uh, you know, going systematically to CVPR. I was actually program chair of CVPR in 2006. Um, and and you know it, it wasn't like a war of the deep learning people against the computer vision committee. I consider myself a part of it, um, but trying to convince people there that eventually people will use feature learning because that was the obvious uh, solution. And it, it, you know it went against a very ingrained um, um, kind of philosophy in computer vision, where most a lot of people there build a career around the whole idea of building features. Um, but there was one kind of surprising uh change of opinion in that respect which is uh, a gentleman called david lowe who is at ubc uh in vancouver who um is the inventor of the sift uh feature um, um, feature extractor which is extremely popular in computer vision and there was an interesting workshop uh, three years ago at the MIT on the future of computer vision, where all the computer vision community you know got together and said, well, "What compu- what is computer vision going for the next few years?" All the you know program managers for funding agencies were here, you know everybody. Um, and, and David Lowe said, you know the future is feature learning. This is you know the, the kind of Yan is, is doing, and, and you know commercial net that's the greatest thing. He'd done a little bit of work on this. Um, and there was a whole session on deep learning. Uh, Ruff Fergus kind of gave an introductory talk, and Joanne gave a talk, which didn't go very well at all. Um, I mean didn't was not really sort of uh, received well by the community, and I, g- I gave a talk, you know, and the title of my talk was, um, um, in five years, all of you will, will be learning your features, you might as well start now. I was wrong, it only took three years. <laughs> uh, so it, it's, it, wh- what happened was that the the evidence was there that those methods were working, uh, and working better than a lot of techniques, but they were easily dismissed by people who could say, "Oh, this is an isolated example. You know, it's just that we haven't tried hard enough with our methods, uh, with you know, with the other methods." And so it's not it's not definite. But the the results of the uh, uh, of you know Jeff's uh, team at the ImageNet uh, 2012 was so overwhelming that uh, that you know there was no there was no discussion anymore.
1: I think it really is fun to see your ideas win out in the end, where you you. Uh, think hard about problems and you care about problems and particular technical approaches and then to intend to see those things really, uh, really carry the day. It must be very, very exciting.
0: Yeah, but definitely. But none of this, it seems, in talking with them, none of this has come easily. And Yashua had some really interesting things to say about staying with your convictions and really keeping faith in your ideas even when they might be unpopular.
1: That's right. You know, and and Jan and Jeff had interesting things to say about that too.
7: From the historical perspective something really important happened which is that a few people um, jeff yan i and a very few others stuck to their vision of uh what what they really uh believe was the right way of doing things and it's not easy to do that you go against uh, the fashion of the day um and it's it's easy to uh, also go wrong in this and stick to your ideas and, you know, uh, not look at the evidence. But I think for research, for long-term breakthroughs, long-term research and real breakthroughs, it's really important to look deep down. And, and if you really believe in something and you have a strong intuition about it, of course, the evidence is always important. But um, you you may need that strong uh, feeling to, to to carry through difficult times and uh, patiently continue to r- understand what is going on and and, and, and demonstrate your, your ideas. I think that's one of the most <coughs>
0: Sorry. No, no no it's, it's okay. okay no that's <laughs> that's
7: that's one of the most important lessons for young people who are wondering what to do and um, how how to decide what, what you know in which direction to to research.
6: So there, are, there is sort of a, a human component to this, which is um, uh, what happens to students who embarked on the, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, quixotic quest of their of their uh, advisors. So I started being an academic in two thousand three, which means my first batch of students graduated around two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, uh, and 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 it was also the time of the uh, um, sort of you know economic uh, crash, essentially. So there were no jobs for them. Uh, no jobs in academia for sure universities were not hiring deep learning was re- really frowned upon as a as a field and so none of those people who are excellent got jobs in uh, uh, academia and in fact many of them had trouble you know getting jobs at places like google and things like this which w- hadn't adopted the philosophy yet um, they got pretty good jobs at you know nec sri and at&t and places like this uh, but in the last two years you know, it turns out they were the only people who knew anything about, about uh, neural nets who had a little bit of experience, you know, perhaps even were managers in their group, and you know, had sort of the early papers, and they're all millionaires now. Right. Yeah. And you'd have thought people would have learned, but we're now working on
5: the next good idea, and the same problem is arising. So I've got a couple of very good students who've done their theses on the next good idea. One of them got a job at Google, but mainly because he managed to port the speech recognition system to them. <laughs> And the field just never learns. Um, everybody now, you can publish any papers you like on deep learning. But if you say, well, there's something deeply wrong with deep learning and we need to change the way we're doing things, it's impossible to get them published.
0: It was really fascinating to sit down with all three of them and get to talk and also get to hear them in conversation with each other about the field.
5: Oh, it was
1: such a unique opportunity. I mean, to get all those guys in, in one spot and, and be able to take up their time in that way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, it was, it was very generous of them and, and really a lot of fun.
0: And we've got many more really interesting conversations coming up for you this season. Um, you'll you'll be hearing the entirety of Hannah Wallach, and Kevin Murphy, and of course, the big three. Oh,
1: and plus lots more fun people, too. I mean, we talked to Neil Lawrence, and we talked to Charles Sutton, and just lots of really, there's so many thoughtful researchers. And, oh, definitely. And luckily, a lot of them came to NEPS, so we, we got to have a lot, of, a lot of really interesting chats.
0: Yeah, David Bly is starting his own department at Columbia. How do you do that? And we even get a chance to talk with David Mimno about zombie ghost princesses and how he's using machine learning to study their relationships to the evil barons who take over their castles. can't
1: wait to hear about that. I know,
0: it's going to be so great. So we hope you'll tune in for the rest of the season. I'm Catherine Gorman.
1: And I'm Ryan Adams.
0: And we hope you'll join us again for Talking Machines.